welcome to PB and Justice, the Price Benowitz podcast, where you join our hosts, Dane Phillips and Mitch Greenberg, on their journey to prove what makes our lawyers different and why our lawyers have chosen to pursue a life of fighting for justice. This episode is hosted by Dane Phillips and was originally recorded for our criminal defense podcast, Obstructing Injustice. Sit back and enjoy the show. Our guest today is Kush Aurora. He's a criminal defense attorney in Maryland for Price Benowitz LLP. He graduated from Catholic University of the America's Columbus School of Law, where he was involved in the DC Law Students Court Program and the Moot Court Society. He then served as an assistant public defender in Montgomery County, Maryland, where he handled a broad range of cases from misdemeanor traffic offenses to serious felonies. He currently has over 102 five-star reviews on Google and is one of the most well-known lawyers in Maryland. Uh, welcome to the show, Kush. Thank you. Kind of the thing that I always start this with is the origin story, right? Why'd you want to become a lawyer? What, what sparked that interest in the law? I got to say, I, was, uh, you know, I grew up in a, in a household where, like so many other kids who grew up in an Indian American uh, household, there was always sort of a push towards uh, doing something in medicine. And when I was a, a sophomore in college, looking for what to do one summer, uh, I saw an opportunity to volunteer, of all places, believe it or not, at the state's attorney's office in Montgomery County, which is the county that I grew up in here in Maryland. Kind of as the, as the summer months approached and, and I, I got more and more uh, interested in looking for something to occupy my time with, wanted to find out more about that opportunity never seeing myself necessarily uh, working in the field or area of law, I had my interest sparked by the fact that the person offering the opportunity for an internship was somebody who needed some help uh, with a uh, pretty uh, well-publicized uh, murder case that he was going to be handling later in the summer. So I showed up uh, sort of in uh, the late uh, month of May uh, and uh, uh, began to get started on working uh, with the office uh, with some very low-level investigation. From that moment on, I was hooked. The only thing that I learned for sure while I was working there was I didn't want to be a prosecutor. I knew that even though I was uh, interning uh, on the prosecutor's side of things, the art and creativity that I was seeing the defense attorneys fighting back with was sort of where I knew my interest was uh, headed, and the rest is history. I never saw myself doing anything else, sort of put my uh, head back in a space where every uh, part-time job during the semester, every summer thereafter, I was doing something related to criminal uh, law and particularly criminal defense work, just as I was uh, approaching college graduation and then going immediately into law school with an eye towards uh, working at the public defender's office immediately after graduation as my dream job of where I wanted to be uh, as I took my first steps as an attorney. So like, like many of us, uh, me included, you had kind of that opportunity that ultimately led itself to being in criminal law and criminal defense. And it, although it's not true for everybody, I mean, there's great lawyers 
uh, like Karen, who have been prosecutors and then uh, switched over to the defense. There's plenty of them, but I, I think deep down, even those prosecutors, I, there's kind of two types of personalities. And this is just my opinion. You have either that natural defender personality or more of a natural prosecutor personality. It doesn't make you good or bad on either side. Just I feel like some people are, are more compelled to one side or the other. And you said you definitely felt that that natural inclination, that fire to defend people uh, from the start. I think that's absolutely true. And, and I'll tell you this, uh, I agree with you 100%. It's not necessarily a bad thing either way. In fact, sometimes uh, having a mind like Karen's where you're, you're seeing former work from a prosecutor's side can be really helpful uh, on the team when uh, uh, trying to put together a great defense. But I definitely had that pull towards being a defense attorney right from the start. I knew that when I looked at a fact pattern or I looked at a case, I was immediately looking at things from the defense's perspective as opposed to the state's perspective, and then kind of beginning to figure out how best to handle the case and how best to respond to the allegations that were made. Uh, so there really wasn't any any other path for me uh, as I uh, began my career in, in uh, the legal profession. Absolutely. I mean, if you're building a dream team of sorts, right, the, the kind of well-quoted thing from the O.J. Simpson, I think you've got to have a former prosecutor on the team. If we, you know, I think if you're building it, you're going to have that diehard criminal defense attorney, the former prosecutor, and the appellate lawyer. Uh, you need every aspect, and uh, it's, it's just the way we think is not the same way as a former prosecutor thinks. So I'm glad you pointed that out. I mean, that it's a, it's, it's interesting how uh, you know we're all different, which obviously that's a, a given. But when it comes to preparing a case, investigating a case, really finding those kind of niches in the defense, how uh, the perspectives of uh, what I call pure blood defense attorneys who've, who've always been on this side versus former prosecutors, how we do look at things differently and how well they work together when you have a, a you know, co-counsel team of a um, defense attorney and former prosecutor. No, I think that's a, a really important point. And I, I'll tell you, when I first uh, started working with uh, Price Benowitz back uh, in 2009, when it was just uh, Seth Price, David Benowitz, myself and uh, some assistant support staff, we were sort of a team of people who were the diehard defense attorneys who knew that that's what we were going to do very early on in our careers. Uh, as um, you know, uh, David Benowitz was also a public defender uh, very early on out of, uh, out of law school when he worked over at the Public Defender Service in D.C. And so we were sort of like-minded people that were getting together to uh, to build and create uh, the practice uh, that we've created. But as time went on and things developed and, and we grew to the firm that we are, we had people that came from varying backgrounds to practice, of course, not only criminal defense work, but uh, an array of uh, different kinds of disciplines uh, that we uh, now cover as a firm. Uh, but as, as the practice developed, uh, we were uh, fortunate to get uh, many people who were former prosecutors so that now when we're working on big cases together, uh, we can tap into the resources uh, that, uh, that we have within the firm of people who have uh, experience as prosecutors or experience as immigration attorneys, or family law attorneys, or any number of things so that we can bring all of those disciplines together to bring a comprehensive defense to 
to the table uh, for our clients and give them uh, sort of the best uh, uh, representation that we can uh, across a wide array uh, of disciplines as opposed to uh, just thinking of things as a defense attorney, which of course is, is critical, is imperative, but uh, can also always be boosted by, by a few more heads coming together to act more uh, creatively to, to, to be more comprehensive together. Right. I mean, just like in uh, almost all things in life and teamwork, diversity leads to a better result. Right. Bottom line. Absolutely. And so tell us about your life as a public defender. You know, uh, what, what was the most important thing you learned? One of the things that I imagine, you know, a lot of people will listen will either be young lawyers, law students, uh, other individuals who are not public defenders. Kind of tell us about your life as a public defender. Sure. So uh, I was young. Uh, as I said, it was the, the first kind of position that I had after passing the bar. And, and I was fortunate to get a position as a public defender uh, in the county that I was born and raised in, uh, in uh, Montgomery County, Maryland, uh, working with a team of attorneys that was just spectacular. Uh, people who were very well respected uh, in uh, the legal community. Uh, lecturers, professors, uh, many of whom had spent decades with the public defender's office. Um, so while I was given uh, misdemeanor uh, cases uh, early on uh, in my uh, time there, uh, the office had a great system set up where you had an opportunity to initially second chair uh, higher level felony jury trials uh, with more experienced attorneys, uh, and then uh, began handling those cases on your own as well. And one of the great things about that sort of mentor-mentee relationship within the public defender's office when I was there was uh, the fact that uh, many of the mentors there would give you an opportunity to handle as much of the case as you wanted, and as much as you felt comfortable with, and they felt comfortable that you were ready for. So it wasn't as if you were uh, working on a felony case and given sort of the grunt work where you weren't really learning anything or handling uh, any of the critical aspects of the case. I remember uh, being involved in a very serious uh, manslaughter case, probably about six months into uh, my work at the public defender's office with somebody that I consider to be one of the greatest uh, criminal defense attorneys uh, in the country. And he gave me an opportunity right off the bat, said, I think you're ready. Uh, you're going to do opening statements, and I want you to be uh, the person that questions our uh, star witness for the state <laughs> in this case. And uh, uh, as scary as that was and as, as frightened as I was in over-preparing uh, for that line of questioning, I can tell you, uh, as a confidence builder, it did wonders for uh, how I was able to handle uh, future cases uh, in saying to me as such a young lawyer, I think you're ready. It really gave me an opportunity to say, what else can I handle? How else can I help? And so one of the probably best things that I got out of working with the public defender's office was uh, being able to have those resources available, those, those mentors, those teachers uh, available at such a uh, early uh, time in my career to bring all my questions to, and then to be given uh, sort of a boost of confidence from to say, we think you're ready. We think you're you're getting it and uh, uh, that you're prepared to handle uh, bigger and bigger uh, things along the way. 
that's one of the greatest things about the public defender's office. And when young lawyers or law students are asking me about, you know, where do you get experience trial experience? I think there's only really three places and there's one that I feel, and obviously I'm biased, uh, feel is uh, the best is either the public defender's office, the prosecutor's office, or a law clerk for a circuit court judge. Those are the three places that you're going to see, courtroom day in and day out what to do what not to do and then of course hone your craft obviously as a law clerk you don't get the opportunity to specifically practice and and kind of really learn your courtroom advocacy skills but you know to me i think there's just no better if you ever want to be a private criminal practitioner there's no better place than to start then the public defender's office you're not going to get that valuable experience you're not going to be in those positions literally in any other uh shop or practice area and it's just a i think it's a place where if you look at where the absolutely best criminal defense lawyers come from uh, the public defender's office for the most part is the cornerstone of their career oh yeah and i'll tell you one of the questions that i was asked during my interview with the public defender's office, uh, again, back in my early uh, 20s, was, have you ever waited tables before? And I thought, what a, what a weird question. Uh, and at the time, I didn't really understand what was behind the question until I got the job and really was, was you know, putting in those 12-hour days handling dozens of cases on, on one docket. And... Uh, uh, came to find out exactly what they meant. And I thought to myself, well, maybe this isn't going to be as important a thing once I went into the private sector and was working uh, with Price Benowitz. And the truth is, is that that never changes as a criminal defense attorney, whether you're handling 12 cases in a day or, or just a few, uh, as we do in the private sector. And that's, and that's because you, you really are required to juggle a number of different things at any uh, moment in time, whether your phone's ringing from one client, whether a judge needs you to answer a question uh, on another line, you're getting an email from a prosecutor, or you're dealing with uh, the hearing that you have in court that morning. It's it's a constant uh, sort of daily juggle of a bunch of different things that are all equally important because at the end of the day, unlike in many civil situations, uh, your client's liberty is at stake, and, and what could be more important than that? So, um, really getting an opportunity to learn time management, the importance of, of, of juggling uh, all of those very important things on a day-to-day basis, and understanding that your, uh, your clients all, no matter what they're really charged with, are all, they're really facing probably one of the most serious situations that they've ever faced in their life and, and need you to give them 100%, no matter what stage their case is in are things that you really do get when you're uh, a young lawyer uh, learning uh, how to hone your craft at a place like the PD. Exactly that. I mean, I mean that perspective, uh, you you just can't teach being put in those situations and it's hard to recreate it. uh, I think in any other place, not, not to go off on too much of a tangent, but a lawyer I know was, on one of those like A&E shows last night. And I I watched it because, you know, I know the lawyer and it kind of followed him through the case of the trial. And I wish more people could actually watch his episode because it was a case where it was a self-defense case and the prosecutor provides a, a, almost a plea offer that you almost couldn't refuse considering what he was facing. And they ultimately, because he was, uh, 
you know, an innocent. He, he refused the plea offer. He didn't win the immunity hearing. So he had to go to trial. And in between that, uh, the, uh, prosecutor revoked the plea offer and getting to see that realness of how, you know, the tears, how upset he was, how getting to know him as a person, the prosecutor never ever gets to see, uh, that, that side of it that a public defender get, you know, of representing a human being and the, the raw emotions of him and his family and what they were going through and making that human connection between them. It was, you know, it was one where, you know, it, you know, it really puts you in the moment. I was like, man, I wish more people could watch this because unfortunately <laughs> that public perception is, you know, uh, these are criminals and, you know, the whole, how do you sleep at night? And, uh, you know, we could go down a long rabbit hole about that, but, uh, I was like, man, this is, you know, a nice short clip that you could show people and they could understand what we what we're trying to, what we're out here preaching, you know, when we get on a soapbox of, uh, you know, representing people and why we do what we do. And so, uh, yeah, it's going off on a tangent there, but so no, now, it's an important point because you're right. There are a lot of stereotypes associated with the job that we do. Um, I think a lot of people, uh, kind of have a, uh, a perception of it that that they get from from TV shows that they watch or just uh, you know some of the newspaper articles that they read, which uh, sometimes focus on the salacious details of uh, the allegations as opposed to perhaps other facts that might uh, lead to a, a, an understanding of the human side of this entire uh, situation. I, I mean, I was having a conversation with. Uh, somebody just a couple of weeks ago about just that, where I had a case a couple of years back uh, that got quite a bit of media coverage, uh, where the statements that my client had made, the allegations that had been brought against him, were all sort of being reported uh, in a very negative light. Uh, the uh, media, clearly the state's attorney's office, thought that the case was a slam dunk and and had sort of uh, convicted him in in the court of public opinion. And uh, when the case was acquitted, the newsman, uh, the journalist who, who was, and I'm using air quotes here, uh, <laughs> who, who had been covering the case for so long was actually sitting in the courtroom the day the verdict was read. Uh, and we didn't hear anything about it in the newspaper. No uh, indications of, of what happened, no calls from them saying, uh, do you have a quote about your client being acquitted? None of that, because it just didn't fit the uh, the frame that had been set up or the, the story, right, the, the narrative that, 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 had, exactly. been, that had been pushed. It, exactly. And, and, and it wasn't going to sell, uh, sell newspapers. And so not, not at this, you know, we're obviously not in that time. So I'm using that as an expression, but uh, it, it just wasn't the, uh, the story that was going to get read uh, in the same way that he had hoped. And so we didn't hear anything more about it. And uh, to this day, we can go back and, and Google information and there's, I think one line written uh, in some other uh, newspaper about uh, the acquittal, but that uh, journalist never covered it. So I think there's a lot of contributions to those stereotypes that, that don't necessarily ever get corrected. And um, um, so I think that the point that you raised, even though you say it was a tangent, is an important one. Right. I mean, it's just incredibly sad. I mean, if uh, people got to understand the empathy that goes into it and, and you know, that these are people's fathers, brothers, mothers, sisters, these are real people. And, you know, they're either wrongfully accused. They either made a mistake and need help 
and, and look, many have been overcharged or incorrectly charged based on what actually happened. I just wish people could be put in that position to understand. And unfortunately, like you said, the narrative doesn't get pushed out there. And thank God uh, for these Netflix documentaries that are coming out because, you know, the public's eyes are starting to become open to wrongful convictions and the human element side of this, uh, of criminal defense. And um, I can tell that juries are thinking differently. We're, you know, we've got a long way to go. There's plenty of systemic issues, but uh, you know, thankfully I think we're moving in the right direction. Yeah, absolutely. Absolutely. So let's discuss your kind of transition from being a public defender to private practice. I mean, we all know that public defenders are underappreciated, underpaid, overworked. Uh, the system is set up not in their favor. And so sometimes there's that, you get that natural inclination that you've, you've kind of run, run its course of being a public defender. Uh, or in, in some respects, some people, it was just always a place to get experience, provide, you know, contribute while you can and and move to the next step of uh, your journey. So for you, what was your transition from being a public defender to private practice? Sure. My plan was really to join a practice that was going to uh, be philosophically in line with what I believed in. It wasn't uh, uh, just about, you know, uh, it wasn't just a financial decision. It wasn't just a decision associated with the hours that somebody might have to put in or the uh, the kind of workload uh, that was going to be involved. Those were uh, not the uh, reasons that I uh, ever intended to leave the public defender's office. My plan was always going to be that if I was going to leave, it was going to be uh, to work with a firm that was going to have their uh, head in the same place that mine was, which was the job is the most important part of this. The Providing a good defense, being a good criminal defense lawyer was going to be uh, our top priority, that we were going to make sure that we had a team of investigators, of uh, clerks, of staff that were always going to be uh, able to provide uh, the support that was necessary for attorneys to do their best work. And when uh, I teamed up with Price Benowitz in the very early days of the inception of the firm, uh, that's what I found. And that's how I managed to make that transition. It was a difficult decision to leave uh, a, a team of lawyers who I previously said were world-class, uh, many of whom I'm still in very close contact with. I still count on for uh, mentorship and their, and their counsel uh, when I'm uh, working on a big issue and I need uh, somebody to bounce ideas off of, uh, and many of whom are uh, people that I consider close friends or, or even family under certain circumstances. I mean, it's the camaraderie. People don't Absolutely. understand as a public defender, not only do you have, and it's hard to explain, but you have a lot of fun. I hate to say yeah, it like that, but sure. the camaraderie that's built uh, as a team at the public defender's office is one that uh, it does make it incredibly difficult to leave. For sure. And I'll tell you that uh, the, the people that uh, are, are working there uh, day in and day out that are still there uh, that have no intention of ever leaving to join the private sector or, or change uh, their uh, positions are, are some of the most admired attorneys that I know uh, because not only of the commitment that they have uh, to their clients, but also the quality of the work that they do. True believers. Uh, they yeah, I mean, absolutely. They make a difference. Absolutely. Uh, but, and, and so, of course, it was a difficult decision to leave them, but I found a place where I 
uh, again, was able to have my philosophy uh, with respect to the work uh, in line with that of my colleagues and, and the direction that the firm was to go in. And uh, that was how I made that transition. Great. Well, do you have a niche of a type of, you know, there's DUI lawyers, there's drug lawyers, and then there's kind of, uh, you know, the criminal practitioner who takes high level felonies. Do you, do you have diverse case types that you primarily handle? Could you go into that? What, what cases do you primarily uh, sure. defend? Sure. So I think it's kind of difficult to ever say that somebody who is a criminal defense attorney has a niche necessarily. I, I would say that criminal defense in and of itself is a, is a niche uh, in that it is so specialized uh, with respect to the vast uh, array of types of, uh, types of law that there are to say that somebody is going to focus their life and their career on criminal defense work. Uh, to begin with, uh, and there's few, there's already, very few of us, <laughs> right? And there's already such a such a specialized uh, area of practice. I will tell you that the way that I like to describe myself to people is is uh, my my niche is the Constitution. I am a person who believes uh, in it and believes that it should be applied. Believes that people's rights uh, should not be violated, and that applies equally to a shoplifting case as it does to a first degree murder case. Any uh, criminal defense attorney that's been in practice for as long as I have will tell you that um, the issues that you see come up in your highest level cases are the same ones that you see come up in your lowest level cases. Uh, uh, issues of suppression uh, of uh, somebody's statements or uh, their right to uh, not be unlawfully searched and seized uh, uh, can be applicable uh, uh, to somebody who was uh, found with a small amount of marijuana in their pocket or a gun that was allegedly used to uh, kill somebody. Now, so, Kush, I'm not going to get political, but are you telling me there's more <laughs> than just the first and second amendments? Is that what you're telling you know, me that more than the first and second amendments, they go past that? God bless you. You know, they, they do. And, and, and there's, so, and there's so much that people again, don't know. And, and that, that sometimes we have to tell them uh, clients that I have who who are our lawyers uh, <laughs> that, that, that are, that are, that are seem to forget done something wrong, forget what their rights are and, and the things that, that they learned in their first year of law school. So um, yeah, there's so much out there and there's, and, and, and again, it gets applied across the board in, in so many ways, no matter what you're charged with. So to say that my niche is anything more than being a criminal defense attorney while I handle, uh, very high level felony cases on a day-to-day -day basis. Um, uh, that doesn't mean that uh, uh, the uh, lower level matters that come, come across my desk are any less important. Well, we'll just say that your niche is the fourth, fifth, sixth, and 14th amendments to the United <laughs> States Constitution. How yes, about that? We'll, 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 we'll just say that. Whatever right. falls under those, uh, those four amendments, is uh, right. that's your niche. Fair enough. <laughs> now, all right. So, advice to young lawyers. No, we, won't, you know, we won't forget that first amendment when it comes to those disorderly conduct cases. That, that's true. It, that's there, it, we can we can pull from it uh, rarely, but thank God, right? That's that we right. still that we still can we can still go down there and use that for the public disorderlies. That's right. So, so like I said, a lot of young lawyers, uh, you know, our goal. I feel like we, you know, it's a community of service, helping people. And so part of this is uh, passing it on. Uh, and, you know, I'm not a big uh, law school proponent as my mentor was not, you know, he believed in, you know, the real practice of law is learning kind of through that 
uh, mentorship. And so part of this is hopefully young lawyers, law students are listening. What advice would you give to these people uh, to be better, uh, better prepared uh, lawyers and, and ultimately, uh, you know, something that, you know, if you had to go back and give advice to young Kush, what, what would you do? See, don't worry so much. It's, it's going to come together. You'll find what you love. And uh, once you do, you'll know. Uh, it's not to say that there aren't tough days. You know, you get a ruling that you're not happy with and you know uh, the judge is not right about or you, uh, you know, are dealing with uh, a case where you just can't stand the, uh, the way that your client was overcharged or perhaps treated by a police officer. There are tough days even the, the work that you love and that you know that you're going to do for the rest of your life. But I would tell anybody uh, who is just starting out or is trying to figure out where their uh, career is going to go, uh, you know, try things, figure out uh, what kinds of uh, opportunities you have available to you. Uh, you, you never know uh, where uh, you're going to figure out that career path from. I, I, found this, uh, this path when I was a sophomore in college, but many of my uh, friends who are fantastic criminal defense attorneys didn't know that this is what they wanted to do until well after they graduated from law school and had passed the bar. So um, it comes together, and, and when it does, you'll know that it, that it has, and, uh, and you'll feel uh, a certain way about the work that you're doing uh, every day. You'll know that uh, it's something that you enjoy, um, that it's something that you're passionate about, and uh, it won't feel like work uh, the way that sometimes uh, so many people describe their jobs as uh, jobs that are mundane. And gosh, they, they, they hate getting up and going to work on Monday morning. And they say, gosh, I didn't know it was Monday morning because we worked all day Saturday and all day Sunday because we've got it, something coming up. It's cliche, so, but that old yeah. quote about, you know, if you love what you do, you'll never work a day in your life. It's, it's real. Uh, and, I mean, and, it, that, and it applies in this in this area uh, as much as it does in any because you really do in order to be effective really have to as you know love what you do uh, and because uh, otherwise it'll catch up to you if you're not enjoying your work as a criminal defense attorney you you it'll show right so you really got to be <laughs> well I mean it, I mean the bare bare facts is that this this profession is not for everybody not right. everybody can be a criminal defense attorney. Not everybody can be an effective, zealous advocate. And, you know, it takes that passion, that love, because ultimately, like you said, you're not always going to get the answer you want. The system set up to where you're, you're not going to always be told yes, unfortunately. If you're a yes person, this is probably not the profession to be, especially being a public defender. But, uh, you know, it's one of those where you have to like the, being the underdog in some respects. And you like having to stand up to somebody like the government who has all the resources, all the money, and, uh, you know, the thumbs on the scale, so to speak. Absolutely. People believe that or not, but it's true. Yeah, absolutely. And yeah, you, you're right. We, we walk into court with a, uh, with a, sometimes a plan to defend what many see as indefensible. And uh, uh, if you're not advocating to the best of your abilities, there's no way that you're going to be effective uh, as counsel to your client. And uh, uh, you really got to have a passion for it. Otherwise, yeah, go do real estate law or right. something. Yep. <laughs> <Otherwise>, <laughs> Don't, you know, there's a human being on the other side. It, well, in the same vein, what mistakes 
pitfalls would you tell a criminal defense lawyer to avoid? I think any criminal defense defense lawyer who, uh, you know, can kind of draw conclusions about a case during the first consult with a client is really making a mistake and doing a disservice to their client. I, I am honest with every client who calls me because they all ask the same question. Well, what's going to happen? And what I say is, here's what I can tell you the possible scenarios are, but it's too early to know. And you don't want me to tell you that yet because we want to keep an open mind. Let's see what the evidence shows. Let's see uh, how uh, the discovery process plays out. Let's see what our own investigation shows because we're never going to rely just on what the prosecutors give us to tell us what the outcome of a case is going to be. As I said, we've got the resources uh, within our practice and our firm uh, to have our own investigators go out and conduct an investigation to find out the answers to questions uh, that perhaps the prosecutors didn't take the time to find out or don't have. We want to make sure that we exhaust every possible defense so we can, we can figure out uh, what the most effective way is going to be to represent our clients. So when, when somebody asks me what's going to happen on a case, I say, we want to try and get a different answer than the worst case scenario that perhaps you're looking for here on, the, on, on this initial consult telephone call. And uh, one of the pitfalls that I think a lot of people fall into uh, when they are uh, consulting with a client is to say, well, here's what'll happen when you're convicted of this offense, or here's what happens typically for first time offenders who are convicted for that. You know, perhaps that's part of the conversation. Perhaps that's something that uh, it's important to share with a person, but I think a far more effective tool uh, for uh, those initial consultations, for making sure that you yourself as an attorney are not closing off uh, opportunities for defense and ways to effectively represent your client is to say, here's what could happen, but here are some of the things that we are going to do to try and figure out what really happened here, what other defenses are available uh, so that we can uh, put the most comprehensive defense together for you as counsel on this case. Um, I think that's probably one of the most important things that uh, I've been able to develop uh, as an attorney uh, practicing criminal defense for the last 15 plus years. Uh, and again, something that I think that uh, the most effective attorneys uh, are able to do for their clients down the line. I mean, you're absolutely right. I mean, you, you do get asked that question just about every consult. And, you know, I always make sure to say, look, if a lawyer, if you've spoken to another lawyer and they've made you a guarantee in the outcome, you need to know that you need to already run the other direction from that lawyer because that lawyer hasn't reviewed any evidence. They haven't spoken to the prosecutor. They haven't conducted an independent investigation. At this point, I can only tell you, like you said, the possibilities of what may happen, but I can tell you what we're going to do to ensure we build the best defense possible. Absolutely. Absolutely. And, and uh, you know, that's, that's exactly, you, you took the words right out of my mouth when I, when, when I say run the other way, because it's so often that people are, are coming to me and saying, well, so-and-so said, this is what's going to happen to me. And I say, you know, that's a, that's a red flag. That means that somebody's not willing to put in the work to figure out how we potentially can win. And at this early stage, as somebody who is innocent until proven guilty, Let's keep all options open before we 
uh, before we start to decide exactly what the outcome of the case is going to be. Or just to be candid with them. I mean, frankly, they're, they're lying to them to try to get their money. And that sure. you know, <laughs> it's offensive. Uh, sure. But uh, so as we start to kind of get into the, the last part of our, our interview here, we have a section called the obstructing injustice uh, defense, right? And so which systemic issues in the criminal justice system bothers you the most? I want you to just kind of choose one. We got, you know, obviously the highlights of bail reform, junk science, jailhouse snitch, eyewitness misidentification, uh, basically all the ones that the Innocence Project has identified is, uh, that leads to a wrongful conviction. Uh, and, and you don't have to be limited to those, but do you have a uh, kind of that one thing that just, uh, you know, just drives you crazy? You know what drives me crazy? DNA. DNA drives me absolutely crazy. And the reason that it drives me crazy is because as a person who really, you know, spends a lot of time looking at uh, what's out there in the media, what kinds of topics are being focused on in, in news reports of cases, uh, what I see is that the public has been sold this uh, this false narrative about the fact that if there's DNA somewhere, that that must mean that uh, for all intents and purposes, you know, the, the state has a rock solid case. And that's just not true. Having studied uh, the issues of DNA with people who have committed their lives as forensic experts, some of the falsities that are associated with uh, the DNA results, how they're collected, how they can be contaminated, how DNA can be spread from one place to another. I know um, that prosecutors try to rely on uh, that misinformation that's out there about DNA uh, to sell to juries uh, that uh, their case is actually stronger uh, than it is. Quintillion, and, octillion, you know, they, yeah, how absolutely. many zeros is that? That's more, right. than, more than the people on the face of the earth. That's right. And, <laughs> and unfortunately, because it's such a complicated area of, of investigation and of evidence, juries sometimes just decide that they're going to rely on what's, what they're told. And it's so often the case that we have to bring in uh, our own experts to sort of assist the jury in unlearning everything that they've been told. Uh, and saying, look at it this way, look at it's it. It's difficult, way. you're right. So that you can understand this is not as clear cut as perhaps you've been sold on before uh, because uh, you know, perhaps it's just easier to believe it that way because it's so complicated. I think DNA has gotten a, a really a, a, a false bolstering uh, from everything that we see in TV and movies. Um, so that's really the thing that I think you know, has, has the most potential for reform. I think Barry Sheck did a great job uh, uh, during OJ and, and subsequently through the Innocence Project with, uh, with addressing uh, some of those issues. And, and we've come a long way, but there's a long way to go. A case that I have, uh, which was supposed to be uh, coming up for trial this summer, but is probably going to be reset because of all the delays with coronavirus, has a, has a huge uh, amount of gray area when it comes to DNA that now we've had prosecutors actually conceding on based on some preliminary hearings that we've had uh, associated with the way that the evidence was collected, subsequently tested, some of the results that were given and, and some of the ways that those results 
could be misleading if presented the way that the prosecutors had initially wanted them. Of course, now, I mean, even with the this genotyping uh, probabilistic or probabilistic genotyping where you have algorithms kind of filling in gaps, I think it leads to a whole host of problems sure, uh, where you can't have a computer program. In my opinion, we should not have a computer program filling in gaps that ultimately have such powerful uh, testimony to a jury that would ultimately sway them, I think is uh, fraught with issues right. and a shout out to the national forensic crim, uh, national forensic, uh, college, uh, that's hosted by NACDL and Barry Sheck, uh, helped create it. And so, uh, if you haven't attended that or any other young lawyer that's wanting to learn more about forensic sciences, there's a week long course that's generally held in New York, uh, at the, Cardozo School of Law, and it's the Nas National Forensics College, uh, and again, it's NACDL Innocence Project, and really the best experts and lawyers from around the country uh, teach you kind of the, all the different systemic issues we just talked about, and of course, the whole day on DNA, whole day on eyewitness mis misidentification, uh, kind of walks you through each day and some of the biggest things, and it was one of the greatest uh, learning experiences that I've had as a lawyer, and so I highly recommend Fantastic. All right. So here's the cross-examination uh, section. All right. I'm going to hit these real quick. Uh, this is light. Don't, don't think about them too much. We'll just okay. rapid, rapid fire. So what's your favorite law related movie? <laughs> I love the firm. You, it's Mitch McDeer, right? That's right. That's right. That's one of my favorite movies. <laughs> what made me what? know that I didn't want to be a big firm lawyer. Now, I mean, and again, that when we talked about knowing who you are is knowing who you're not. And I think a lot of, if you're a, you know, in your core, a criminal defense lawyer, those white shoe firms is like the farthest place for, oh, yeah. for us. Uh, what's your favorite book? Um, well, right now I just finished uh, The Girl with the Dragon Tattoo, uh, which nice. uh, left me kind of, uh, I, I'd never seen the movie and, uh, uh, you know, I was, uh, eager to read the book. I had it sitting on my shelf for a while and, and had a little bit of time these days with all the shutdowns. So <laughs> I uh, uh, put some time into reading it. I call it fantastic. And I don't know if it was my favorite, but the one that comes to mind right now, because it's the one I just finished and uh, uh, sort of keep going back and, and uh, thinking about it and reading online uh, analyses of different things uh, that I found in it. So well, there's your uh, primacy and recency, right? Uh, so, uh, which lawyer in history would you want to meet if you could? Um, one of the uh, things that uh, I used to get teased about in my in my early parts of my career was before any big trial, I used to watch Johnny Cochran's closing argument from the OJ trial on YouTube, uh, and a particular uh, moment when he. Uh, just went after Mark Furman in his closing argument was probably my favorite. I kind of had to pause it for a second, get ready for him to kind of go after uh, Furman in his closing argument. It's probably the best, you know, 12 minutes of a closing that I've ever heard in my life. And uh, so he's probably uh, the guy that I would want to talk to about it because the way that he delivered that closing, I could tell that he had his entire script in front of him. Because uh, he had a binder, and it took it probably took two days to close. Right. Uh, for Most people case. don't realize that. Right. So a nine-month trial. Yeah. So he had his binder with him, but I think I saw him refer to it two times during the course of the entire closing. 
And uh, I just was so impressed by the way that he was able to keep it all all straight. Uh, because again, almost a year long trial with, you know, a year plus of preparation before right. uh, countless you know, witnesses he was able to do just uh, uh, incredible. And uh, uh, so uh, he, he's probably uh, one of the guys that uh, I would want to meet and, uh, and talk with. I'm glad you brought that up. I'm, I'm going to have to go watch it. I'm going to have to go yeah. back and watch it. I've seen it years ago, but I'm going to have to go back on YouTube and watch it. And you're yeah. right. I mean, not to say it's spiritual, but the best closing arguments are done from the heart. No doubt sure. about it. Sure. You just kind of feel compelled to do it. All right. Yeah. So list one thing that you do that has made you a better lawyer. Huh. One thing that I do that's made me a better lawyer. doesn't have to be law related. No, that's, that's okay. Uh, one of the things that I uh, do is I, I go for a run every day of the week if I can. Uh, it really allows me to clear my head. This, this job can get stressful. You can have a million things going on all at once. Uh, I find if I get that 45 minutes to an hour break, uh, every single day where I can just close off and, uh, you know, put on the, the music and, and get out there for a run that really helps, uh, keep me focused and, uh, uh, able to attack, uh, uh, my job with full force when I, when I'm done with it. Nice. What would you do if you were not a lawyer? What's your, what's your dream job? I have no idea. <laughs> <laughs> so you're living the dream. Yeah. I mean, that's, it's, uh, uh, that's a fair statement. I, I have no idea what, what else I would do. Honestly, probably, probably, uh, talk about being a criminal defense lawyer. If I'm working <laughs> on this, so. Well, good deal. So how we end every show is what we call war stories. I and mean, it's where, you have a choice you, you to really tell us about a specific case or a specific moment in the courtroom. It can be funny. It can be kind of that Johnny Cochran moment in a closing argument. Uh, tell us about either a memorable, memorable case you had or moment during your career. Um, you know, when I was uh, uh, just getting uh, started, um, I had a uh, misdemeanor disorderly conduct trial probably my second week. Uh, as a public defender with a uh, judge named Barry Hamilton, who's uh, since passed away, but he was a uh, really, really smart guy. He was sometimes known to be a little impatient with, uh, <laughs> with uh, the newer attorneys uh, that were uh, in the courtroom because he, he was sort of, I want to be here. I want to get this done. and I want to get out of here. Please don't bore me with ridiculous arguments or things that are, uh, that are not, uh, get not to it. Counsel. Yeah. Like, let's get to it. So sort of like what I'm doing right now. <laughs> no, 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 get, get, get to it. no, no, no. I mean, that's, that's, that's what I heard in my head. I yeah. could just see this old judge being like, all right, let's get to it. Yeah. Yeah. And, uh, he, he watched me as I was cross-examining a police officer on a disorderly conduct case, asking him every question from, uh, you know, what color was the sky at the time to, you know, do you remember if my client's chewing gum or not? All kinds of questions. Kept getting these relevancy objections from the other side. Uh, called me up to the bench in the middle of my cross-examination of the police officer and said, look, you'll get there. Just move it along. And I thought to myself, well, if the judge is telling me to hurry this along, maybe I should hurry this along. Maybe he's giving me a uh, a, a clue into the fact that I've already made my point and uh, I should shut up and, and, you know, take my win if I'm already there. 
And I felt like I was doing pretty good with respect to my cross-examination. Perhaps I'd asked too many questions at this point and was just trying to make sure that I didn't miss anything because I prepared and prepared and prepared for this particular trial as it was one of my first. And sure enough, the judge found my client not guilty. And I think what I learned from that was sometimes with respect to this job, less is more. Sometimes if you made your point, you don't necessarily want to dilute it by asking a number of other unnecessary or uh, uh, you know, irrelevant questions. And so uh, that was a memorable moment for me. It taught me to sort of be concise, to uh, bring uh, my strongest points into the courtroom, uh, to make the most effective arguments uh, on behalf of my client. Uh, and I won't forget uh, that lesson on that particular day. So uh, that's uh, probably one of the most memorable moments I have. Well, man, thank you so much for uh, coming on the show. Uh, I, do you have, do you, I don't know if you already know your social media handles. Obviously, everybody can, can uh, Google Cush uh, Aurora uh, in Maryland as far as an attorney and find you. But if you got any social media handles you want to uh, put out there, uh, we yeah, can go ahead. And- I, I, I think uh, we're at, at Price Benowitz is one. Of course, we've got uh, uh, Maryland, uh, at, at uh, Maryland uh, Lawyer. Uh, and uh, there are a number of others uh, which uh, you'll be able to get if you if you Google my first and last name uh, that we've set up through the firm uh, for the varying areas of practice that we have. That's great. And obviously, you can find this podcast on Facebook at Obstructing Injustice Podcast. Find it on Twitter at Injustice Pod. And, and you know, look, we're lawyers, so we got to give our uh, obligatory disclaimer. Look, this isn't legal advice. There's no attorney-client relationship. Past results don't guarantee future uh, results. You know, each case is different. But at the end of the day, if you, you're in Maryland, you got a specific legal question or criminal defense case, you need help, call Cush. All right. He's there to help. Obviously I'm a criminal defense lawyer in South Carolina. I don't know anything about the law in Maryland, (laughs) (laughs) but what I'll tell you is, Hey, look, we have, you know, you want to hire somebody that you want the things you want to look at when you're looking for a lawyer is their training, their experience, their results, their client reviews, their awards, accolades, recognitions, all those things. But the most important thing after you do that is sitting down with that lawyer, meeting with them and seeing if that trust is there, that, you know, meeting of the minds, that human connection. And from there, when you got both of those, you know, you found the right lawyer for you. And, uh, you know, look, Cush's uh, representation and what he's done for his clients in the past speak for themselves. Uh, And so, look, we're we're happy that he's been on the show. And uh, we're just uh, glad for everybody for listening and uh, hope, hope you come back and check us out next time. Thanks, Dave.